This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Crime, Kent. How, how you doing? Howdy, Op. What you doing? Uh, just arranging my wee pennies by year and listening to some music. Hmm. That's a, that's a good song. That's actually kind of got me thinking about a case we should talk about sometime. Or today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready whenever you are. Oh wow. Oh, I didn't mean. Uh, all right. Well, l- let me see. Um. So this case is about an arsonist, which sounds pretty boring. I know arson in general is a pretty boring true crime, but this guy is a real piece of work. Trust me, Op. I'm trying to think of a fitting badass quote to start this episode with that involves fire, though. Well, how about this one? Parker Conrad once said, Some days you're the fire hydrant and sometimes you're the dog. Does uh, does that work? What? No, no, that doesn't work. How is that even relevant? How about this one? Sam Walton once said there's only one boss, the customer, and he can fire everybody in the company from the chairman on down simply by spending his money somewhere else. Yeah, how about that one? That one talks about firing. Uh, Just because the quote has the word fire in it, it doesn't mean it. Terry Pratchett is known to have said, build a man a fire and he'll be warm for a day. Set a man on fire and he'll be warm for the rest of his life. No, that's an... (laughs) Uh, Okay. I like that, but no, no. Uh, um. Bill Maher once said, suicide is man's way of saying, you can't fire me, I quit. Forget it. That? That's Forget, it. Forget it. Forget no? it. Oh. We're talking about Thomas Sweat up. Thomas Sweat. The finest steel has to go through the hottest flame. Richard Nixon. No, stop. None of these work. The four building blocks of the universe are fire, water, gravel, and vinyl. And that one's by Dave Barry. Please stop in the name of all things holy. Please stop. Firebound. Some caveman probably after burning his finger. Somebody kill me, please. Recording has initiated. He goes out walking after midnight with his plastic shopping bag full of flammable, an arsonist briefcase. He's out in the moonlight, casting an inconspicuous shadow on this indiscriminate spree. He's searching for something, anything that will turn him on. A muscle car, a muscle man, a muscle man with a muscle car. Living in a tidy, solid little home. Hmm. His walk begins to loosen, melting slightly, into something like a sachet. He can't help himself. It's all so exciting. A muscled marine with a muscle car, living in a sturdy, immaculately manicured home. Oh, dear. He spots something that will hold the fantasy and rushes now. Looking like a little lady in need of a lavatory, though 
The relief he requires will only come once the wick is lit. He quietly climbs the porch steps, sets down his device, plastic bag giving up a soft, delicious crinkle, and lights the fuel-soaked sock. A blaze comes to life, a delicate hand of heat immediately blooming from the bag, shooing away the darkness, and he slides expertly from its reach, now speed-walking up the block, rubbing furiously at himself as the street warms in his wake, glowing orange. Say, Op, did you ever play with fire as a kid? Were you a little flamer? You know, there was a kid named Phoenix um, that I did play with as a kid. He was uh, he was special to my heart. He he um, did not understand the fun fact to know and share about grain silos, and that is that the dust from a grain silo actually is flammable, and a little spark and poof, Phoenix burned up one day playing grain silo with his lighter and uh he actually had a twin brother pohoenix and they just just re- renamed him phoenix did it wait this this kid died yeah yeah phoenix died his name was phoenix but his twin brother yeah phoenix and but his brother pohoenix oddly enough same spelling different pronunciation they just started calling him phoenix instead as an homage is this true yeah, he died in a grain silo. The dust from the grain silo is very flammable. I did not know this. Yeah, but either. they just and he was rickety. they just gave the dead brother's mm-hmm. name to the to the next one in line. Like you're no longer. Yeah, he was his twin, and the foot that what well what they had done is they named them both Phoenix, as in the spelling, but one they called Pohoenix, and the other they called Phoenix. And so when Phoenix died. They just started calling Pohoenix Phoenix, and Pohoenix was okay with it because it was like a, you know, pour a 40 on the grave kind of, you know, respect brother kind of thing to his brother. So, yeah, he was just in the grain silo, rickety, rackety, tickety, tackety around, kicking up all the grain dust, and then he lit his lighter, poof. How old was he? 13. Lucky number 13. I'm trying to picture, that had to have been like being in a giant incinerator. Yeah, there are videos on YouTube. You can see where like they, there's one in particular where like the side of the grain silo ruptured and all the grain started coming out, but the to the metal was bursting open and like, you know, just a little spark from that metal, boosh, everything. Also, this is a fun fact to know and share. I was at a lumber, a lumber manufacturing mill one time in an office, in an office building, not even near the lumber mills, but at the beginning of the meeting, they had like five minutes of, in the case of explosion, here's how to get out. And I didn't say anything till the end. I was like, why did you, why did you tell us all this stuff about explosioning and stuff like that? And they said, oh, because this whole plant, because it's a lumber mill, the, the air is hypercharged with wood particles and it could blow up at any minute and i'm like i'm never coming back here <laughs> make it seven dollars an hour yeah totally <laughs> pick someone else pohoenix i think got a good job at a lumber mill later on in life well uh after after all the people that we've covered on this show you know we've got john bobbitt and carl tanzler and 
Ken Rex McElroy and Boone Helm and and so on and so on. There's been little pieces of their of every every one of their personalities that I kind of identify with. I get except for maybe John Bobbitt. And with this individual that we're going to be talking about today, Mister Mister Thomas Sweat, I kind of if if I was ever going to be anything growing up, it was probably going to be an arsonist in terms of criminal activity. If I ever ended up being a professional criminal, it probably would have been an arsonist. While I was probably in kindergarten, first grade, my father was stationed across the country in New Mexico, and I stayed here in Kentucky with my grandparents on a farm. At the time, he raised corn and hay, and uh, then there was also just a garden, but it was just a cattle farm, you know, with the with the basics. That's where, if you hear me tell stories about frolicking through the fields and catching crawdads and frogs and everything, that's usually during that time, or while I was oh. over there as I was growing up. I always thought that maybe that was the time he spent in the Middle East, but it's just not a lot of frogs. Now, to I don't catch know there. if you would call what we were doing through the fields in the Middle East frolicking, but I guess you could. I guess you could ref- <laughs> I guess without without sound, that's probably what it looked like. <laughs> we'll call it frolicking with bullets. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. And th- and this was like while I was in kindergarten, like I said kindergarten first grade, so I stayed with my grandparents while my uh, mom and dad and my little brother were with my dad while he was stationed in New Mexico. My grandparents lived in this in this old farmhouse. He had built it himself after he got home from World War II in the late 1940s. And it was just a, an old farmhouse out in the, out in the field in, in the middle of the Kentucky country. Looked like, kind of like that house from Night of the Living Dead. Have you ever seen Night of the Living Dead? Oh, yeah. Th- this house had a, an upstairs to it. And one time, me and my cousin, Suzanne, she was like my... One of my little friends that I ran and played, and she won't care that I used her name. I, she's actually a listener of the show. Hello, Suzanne. So we kind of grew up together running around there in the fields and whatnot, and we found one day a big, like, do they call them a, a courting pot that you used to, you you would can mason the jars cannering. in? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ma- massive, like, pots. Mm-hmm. Filled the hot weather and all yes. that. Now, we dragged it upstairs, and we also found a lighter. And for a few days... Uh-oh. Me and Suzanne got upset, or I think I got upset. She was just there. She wasn't really guilt. She was just child. I think with her, it was just child curiosity. But for me, it was a little more than, and I just got really into burning things in this pot, just whatever I could find, anything I could find, you know, old papers, newspapers, um, folders, <laughs> uh, lids. If there was a dried up Animals. dead lizard on the porch. Like whatever I could find, yes. I would just burn it in this, and and we did that for probably about a week and a half there, and it was just Suzanne guilty by association, really, and me wanting to burn it, <laughs> and then I started venturing out, and I started lighting stuff on fire around the house outside. I really liked fire. I still to this day really enjoy fire, but there was something burning simultaneously on the outside and on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> So I was really enjoying seeing how different things burned and watching them burn and and smelling it and everything. But eventually, my grandfather, who was a good man. Now, before we go with this, go forward with this story, I need to point out my grandfather was a stern, good man that worked his ass off every single day, his hands to the bone. But this is a different time. This is you know the the early nineties, and my grandfather was a World War II veteran that. Rarely ever left the state, let alone not even the county, hardly. And it was old school. The way he handled things was old school. So whenever he found we were burning stuff up in the on the second floor, 
he he brought us downstairs and took his belt off, and he would take that belt and he would make it talk. That's what he called it, making it talk. Yeah, I know what you're talking like, about. A fish. You would hold that belt by both ends and then slap and it. then pull it. You bring it together and then yeah. it would go. Whoosh, whoosh. He would do that before yes. he beat our asses. <laughs> and then he would pick you up by in the middle of the living room. He would hold one arm up and just beat your ass in a circle. While you're trying to run around in a circle, you got one arm up, right? And he was a farmer. So your feet are almost off the ground by one arm, and he's swinging you around and just wearing your ass out with this belt. And I swear to God, Op, he beat the arson out of me. He beat the arson out of me. He beat the the word, and then he beat the arson out of my poor little cousin who didn't even do nothing. Oh. <laughs> She had no desire to be an arsonist. Hey, I don't want to dig into this too deep, but um, do you think there's anything behind the uh, dynamic of your whole family went away and you stayed behind? (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about that. I'm not going to dig too deep, but I don't know. Seems kind of like, hey, let's not take Kent. (laughs) There's actually a reason. I was in school. They wanted me to go to school in my hometown. They didn't want me to have to go to school in some other. They, like they wanted me to go to school in my hometown, you know, where I grew up and where all my family was. Okay. And my little brother wasn't in school yet. But maybe that was just an excuse. I had never really thought about that until just now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way I feel about my kids, I'm like, ah, if I could reduce the numbers by one and know they're safe for a while, I'd probably do it. <laughs> well, I was safe. <laughs> sure were. My grandma sometimes, whenever she would go to wake me up for school, I would like wake up. My grandma was like 500 years old at the time, right? Just a sweet old farmer's wife. Her favorite thing to do was go to church and and can stuff and mason jars. Oh, that was like her favorite. And and tea kettles. She loved tea kettles, teapots. But sometimes I would wake up at like 11 o'clock on a school day and I would be like, Mama, I was supposed to catch the school bus. And she'd say, well, you was just sleeping so good. I didn't want to wake you up. I'm like, wow, I really like you, Mima. <laughs> She's awesome. But to bring it back down to a sadder point, after Papa got done beating our ass, the worst part was he would always make us sit on the couch while he watched Judge Judy afterwards until we stopped crying. <laughs> and he'd be like, you done yet? And we'd be <laughs> just asses hurting from the beating that we had just received. <laughs> Hey, also, here's a question I have. Just trying to figure out your family dynamic, I guess, a bit. What Your cousin lived with your Mima and Papa, too? No, so, oh, how do I exp- So, where <laughs> I grew up at, like, a, a large portion of my family lived on, like, this half-mile strip. Uh, maybe even a mile strip. It was aunts and uncles and cousins. So, I kind of grew up, like, I spent a lot of my childhood on my dad's side of the family with my grandparents. And then when I wasn't with them, it's really confusing. But when I wasn't with them, I was with my mom and it was on the, almost like a commune almost. Yeah. Sounds like, I was going to say like a, like a Las Vegas strip commune. Of everybody with the last name. And it was, but it was cool because as kids, we could just run out the back door and just go wherever we wanted and just whatever house we were near, we could go in there and get food or whatever because it was all family, right? But my cousin lived there, so we just kind of grew up playing together. And there was other cousins, too. She was just the one that happened to be in the thickets with me whenever we were catching stuff on fire. (laughs) 
<laughs> but Papaw beat the arson out of us. I have no desire to set fires. I haven't since that <laughs> night. I have every time I think of fire, I think of just aged tobacco smelling leather wrapping itself around my lower thighs and ass and lower back. <laughs> Until you got older, and then it was all just aim and fire. (laughs) You added that aim part, and then it became, you know. Yes. Freedom seeds. And that was my story of arson. That's cool, living like that on that strip, just like that. All of your family. Wait, you know who wasn't there? Your family. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like it's painful. I like talking about it a whole lot. <laughs> my mom actually still lives there to this day, and my brother now. She never came home. No, no, not in new. She she lives back there, next to where the oh. house that I started these fires in okay. is still in the family. My brother lives there right now. He rents it now. My both my grandparents are passed away now. They both died, but my brother moved uh, in, and my mom okay. lives. My aunt still live. Everybody still is. It's still like. My family that lives on that. That's awesome. Would you ever think about moving back to that strip of family land? May I don't know. I mean, there's not like they live out in the middle of it's. It's like thirty minutes to the nearest Walmart or restaurant. Oh, okay. Or and yeah. it's like way out, way out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And out. I like that. There's like you can go out and shoot a gun anytime you want, or a lot of fire. Oh yeah. You can do anything you want. Nobody says anything. Everybody just okay. minds their own damn business. Papa catches you. <laughs> We're talking about Thomas Sweat today, Op. Okay. One of the most prolific arsonists in the history of the United States. And he was born on November 1st, 1954 in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, to a Miss Dozen Allen and Timothy Sweat. Now, he was the seventh of 11 children. And at the time of his birth, his dad was a janitor at an elementary school. And his mother worked as a sewer. Now, I I kept looking up what a sewer is, but if you type it in, if you type in, if you go to Google right now and type in what does a sewer do, it just tells you that it deposits waste. It tells you what an actual, like a physical sewer does. How do you, is it S-E-W-E-R? Holy shit, I just had a realization. Let me start that over. Yeah, I was going to say, that's sewer. Uh, we're going to leave that out. <laughs> Uh, no, keep it in, keep it in, keep it in. That makes me look so stupid. Uh, I think it's great. <laughs> I kept... I kept looking up what a sewer does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to keep it. We're keeping okay. it. <laughs> and it kept telling me what shit, what happens with shit. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a really crappy job. Oh, my goodness. That's oh, awesome. I realized it as I was reading it. I felt so stupid. <laughs> it happened while we were on, while we were recording. <laughs> I looked at that word and I went, oh, sewer. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, the English language to the rescue. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Oh, We'll just leave it in. So the dad was a a janitor at an elementary (laughs) school, and his mother worked as a sewer. 
So now I just learned out what she did. I just found out what she did. Hard <laughs> <laughs> hitting research. Oh. I tried so oh, hard so off to find what sewer I was. I know you did. Now, they grew up poor, but they were never hungry. They never went hungry. It seems like Thomas had a fairly normal, like, 60s and 70s childhood. His parents were very religious, non-denominational, but they didn't go to church. They didn't pick a church. They didn't go to, like, one particular church. Instead, they would wait for pastors, and it didn't matter what pastor, but a pastor to, like, make, like, a... A pickup church. You know how you play pickup basketball? Yeah, this was so his church was sort of like singles mingle. That we mean by pickup church? Like you go there to like, everybody drops their keys in a bowl right before you go in, then you have a sermon, and then you live with someone else. No, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. But it's just like random church in random places, traveling church. Oh, okay. Traveling church. Okay. Like if Barnum and Bailey's did a church. So they would just find wherever these random churches were around their town and go to there. So they never went to the same place twice. They were always dealing with different preachers. And then occasionally, sometimes they would also host church in their house. They would invite, you know, neighborhood members over and they would just hold a whole church in their living room. Wow. Yeah. Probably not that weird at the time, I would imagine. Right? No, probably not. No, especially. Yeah. You know. Then in the 80s, the uh, 1880s, all the way up to the mid-1900s, I would say, happened quite a bit. Now, Little Sweaty grew up on on White Street in Roanoke Rapids in a small neighborhood. The dad was was semi-abusive to the mother, and I kind of also got carried away with the ass-whoopings on the children. But like I said, this is kind of (laughs) like normal 50s and 60s stuff, right? Hell of a time to be alive. This is also not a good time if if you're a young man and you're not overly masculine. Is that the nice way to put it? You're not if you're a young. You're man the opposite and not of masculine. masculine. Okay, so more feminine type of men. Not a good, not a, not a okay. fun time. Yes, and and because of that, because right. Thomas was like that. Thomas himself admits that he has a very he called Thomas calls you know. it a sissy walk. He also has a real high voice like this. Right, he kind of I, I couldn't find oh. an interview with him. But I imagine okay. his voice, just by the way people talk about it in the book that I read, he has like a like kind of Michael Jackson-y. Okay. Like a, kind of like a horse whinny. So, so you're saying that his, his horse whinny and his gait made it difficult for him to be accepted. Not as much the fashion of the time, like, you know, plaid couture wasn't really a thing. So it was more like physical attributes that made him odd or peculiar. That's that's ridiculous. You're being you're being ignorant. That's ignorant. That's how I imagine Thomas talking. But because of these features, his father sometimes referred to him as a he she. He would go, Oh, here comes that here comes that he she. Oh or, there goes that he she. Or look, there's a he she. <laughs> and later it was Oh no. It makes a fire is being set by that he she. But <laughs> for now, it's just he she. So old he she sweaty. <laughs> He does average in school. Thomas maintains normal grades. He's not going to be valedictorian of anything, but he's also not in ISS or, you know, alternative school. Just kind of blends in aside from his walk and his voice. One thing that I forgot to mention was we've been covering a bunch of white boys on this show. We're at the 13th episode now. This is our first Mm. black antagonist. Yes. Our first black bad guy. So that's a good streak for crackers. 
Twelve person cracker streak. I think. Hold on. We yeah. got the Atlas Pass was a bunch of was a bunch of white people, a bunch of honkies. That was like the honky holocaust. The Atlas Pass was. Yes. Uh, uh, Tansler. Cecil Hotel. All all whiteies. Yeah, all white people. Boone Helm was really white. McElroy white. Yeah, this is our first minority. Yeah. So that's neat. This broke the crackers dozen. That, that's really neat. That being said, his un- Thomas's uncle came over to visit once when Thomas was young, and Thomas was standing in the kitchen, just minding his own business, standing there all. <laughs> his uncle looked him over and he <laughs> said, "Oh, so he's going to be one of those things, which is pretty rough." Oof. But Thomas kind of gets him back in yeah. a way. So his uncle says, "Oh, so he's going to be one of those things." Thomas, though, from an early age, kind of develops this horniness to shoes, this fetish to shoes. He really loves shoes, men's shoes. He loved big feet, like 11, 12, fucking 13, just big meaty toes and hairy, hairy feet. Just got him hard <laughs> and sweaty, like sweaty feet with at a construction site. Wow. Like a construction site was the best, just men's sweaty, big, juicy, fat, meaty <laughs> fucking feet. Just got him like really. He was throbbing. He loved that. You with me, Op? Op. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, that being said, his uncle had really nice shoes. He took note of this. He thought they were sexy. And not long after that, Thomas starts beating off at the kitchen table while thinking about his uncle and his shoes. And he's like, fucking take that, Uncle Jerry. Yeah. I'll paint the bottom of this table. Wow. Uncle Jerry, <laughs> what do you what do you think that what do you think it is with the foot fetish? Like, what creates that? It seems like such a divergence from you know. Is it the foreignness, maybe like the alien nature of the foot compared to the rest of the body? I don't. I can't figure it out. You know, like seventy percent of fetishes, I get. I don't have them. Yeah, but I get them. I don't, however, get the foot yeah. fetish, like the feet. I don't understand. No. I don't have a problem with feet. No. I'm not grossed out by feet. I just look at feet the same way I do, like... Elbows. A knee. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, I just don't see it as an uh, erogenous zone. It it doesn't... I I guess if feet were involved, but, you know, then, then maybe there's something to it, you know, in the course of intercourse, but... I've never understood people that like get arousal from looking at people's feet, but it it happens a lot in like the the psycho psycho psychopaths. Like they could look at women's shoes or look look at feet, and it's interesting. Do you know what would be awesome about having a foot fetish, though? Working at Foot Locker. Every beach is a nude beach. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, they'd just be pitching a tent the whole time. Summertime. I mean, it's like porn for free <laughs> everywhere you go. It's like your like, own inside secret. You're always just like, <laughs> you don't watch porn. You just like go to the beach. That's just go to the pool. KOA. You guys got KOAs out there? Oh, yeah, sure. Where When I was growing up, we had one in our hometown, and that's where all like the kids that couldn't afford like an above-ground swimming pool went to swim, and I was one of them. <laughs> that's where I always went to swim. Awesome. It was always the kids that had chocolate smeared across their Andes. That's where the Andes went. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I would just I go there. 
I wonder if like foot fetish people like do they love going to the uh like the pedicure salon? Sometimes it's it's other people's feet, but you know, I guess it's a rabbit hole I don't understand really. Hey Op, have you ever been on like Pornhub or something and looking at just hardcore heavy porn and then you get like this suggestion for like foot job videos? No, no. I I've spent I helped my brother in law set up a um a farmers only account. We didn't set one up on Cornhub though, even though you know I no, Pornhub. It's where like penises go into vaginas and oh, there's ejaculations no. and and like lots of penises and just slamming into vaginas off and asses Ooh, and yeah, and no. breasts Ooh. and tits and ass no. and yeah, ejaculation wow. and semen and oh, so much. It's just like so oh, dicks stuff. in the mouth, dicks in the mouth, ah. and shaking dicks and just sometimes they put a hole in a wall and somebody will put their dick in the hole oh. and the hole be. It'll come through. It's like a bathroom style, and some girl's always peeing, and she's like, oh, yeah. look, a cock. Gross. And then for some reason, her and then her reaction is to just blah, 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 blah. She just, I don't know. That's weird. If I was, like, peeing somewhere, and there was just a, suddenly a dick sticking through the wall, I would be, like, alarmed. Never had that. Like, oh, that's a, that is alarming. Yeah, me too. That is not the, that is not the commode, fella. No, I did not know that's what you were talking about, a bathroom Website with wieners. I, no, I I thought you were talking about. No, that was glory holes. Oh. Well, I mean the wieners are involved, but that's glory holes and glory holes. I, I mean, I guess we can get into it. There's some other the, time. I don't know. There's much glory glory in that. Uh, seems a little bit uh, like you don't know what's on the other end of that kind of situation. Maybe it's a Doberman Pinsier. But to answer your question, no. Um, and but I do have a kind of a. I guess I do have a pre- preference when it comes to. Corn. I'm more of a corn on the cob guy, so I guess you could say I'm more of a hard pour corn than a soft pour corn, like out of a can. So I do like soft pour corn more than no. I like hard pour corn more than soft pour corn. Yeah. Um. So so Thomas started beating off at a really young age, like a lot. This guy jerked off. Jerking off is a running theme for this story. Op. Okay. We need to get comfortable with that now. The listener needs to get comfortable with that now. Yep. There is a lot of masturbating in this. It's almost nonstop. This guy Dang it. just, I mean, he mentions later as an adult that like all he thought about was jerking off. He must have jerked off at like a hundred times a day. Wow. Like it was just make videos, jerk off, set fires, make videos, jerk off, set fires. Think about shoes and feet and sweaty feet and just. Get this semen out of me. Get it out of me. Sounds like a very Get these busy little schedule. white devils out of me. Mm. By any means possible. Are we we're at the end? Do you say we're done? We're done? Oh, we're just getting started. Okay. So like I said, he beat off a lot. Oh, oh here's here's a beat off story up involving no. Thomas. Okay. So when he was young, he used to go out through the backyards to a barber named Johnny Garner. Now, Thomas, like I said, he's gay. He's gay, and he, he likes Johnny Garner. Johnny Garner's a, a masculine black male. You know, it's, this is like one of those black barbershops, right, where everybody's friendly. I always love going in those. I always feel out of place, but there's one down by the house for me here where I don't feel welcome when I go in, but I want to feel welcome <laughs> because everybody's so happy in there, whereas you go into a white barbershop, and they're just, like, mad about those goddamn liberals. <laughs> <laughs> And I just don't want to hear that. Like, no. I don't want to hear conservatives bitch about liberals. And that's what a, a white barbershop is. But yes. you go into a black barbershop, everybody's happy. 
Everybody's like, tell you what, man, they're telling funny stories, and I'm just the weird white guy in the corner, like, <laughs> oh, boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. <laughs> How about them liberals? <laughs> oh, that's old Killy Dilly. I tell you what, Clarence. I tell you what. And then they're like, what? Is he here again? Why is he? He won the good fade. One time I went down there, this is no kidding, one time I went down there to get my hair cut, and the, and the dude, I sit in the chair, and I'm like, I'm just happy to be here. Right, they were actually having a barbecue outside of the barbershop. There was a, a wow. barbecue going on, and I sit down in the chair, and that guy, he kind of looks at me, and he does that teeth suck thing where they're like, <laughs> and he looks me over, he goes, I, and, I, and I'm not being racist. Well, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm just doing an impression of this guy, because <laughs> right. this is exactly what he said. Yeah. He goes, I got to tell you something right now, man. I don't cut a lot of white boys' hair. I don't cut a lot of white boys' hair. And I was like, that's okay. You can fuck it up. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> and he didn't. He did a great job. That's he did awesome. a great job. I went to a nail salon one time because they had a barber there, and he did a really amazing job on beards. So I went to him, and I, he, I learned new words during that time. He said, do you want the hard part? I said, sure. Because I thought maybe he was combing my hair different. But no, he cut a wide crop swath through the side of my head which looked cool for a week and then it started to grow out and I looked like uh, you know I had missed a spot on the lawn he also edged me I got a good edge going so he cleaned up all the fronts and the sides of my edges which looked good for a week and then those babies stuck growing out and you, you it looked like crisscross yeah <laughs> it looked weird <laughs> but I can see how he makes his money now because you got to keep going back if you get that. You can't just, you know. So Thomas likes this barber. He he, he gets his hair cut here. He likes it. This, this barber, Johnny Garner was his name. His, he likes it when his big belly rubs up against him. Now, like I said, they're talking about sports, basketball, football stuff. Just a friendly barbershop. It's a black barbershop. Everybody's doing their thing. And then here's little Thomas. He's eight, nine, ten years old. He's sitting here. hee, hee, hee. And Johnny's belly, he likes it when Johnny's gut rubs up against him. And he would try to pretend like he knew about sports, but he would just be furiously like rubbing himself underneath that apron, right? <laughs> and then would go home. He would just go home. He would go home after getting this haircut, and he would just come all over everything, just jerk off over and over thinking about this barber, Johnny Garner. And he only paid 50 cents for all of this. Wow. And that's a good deal. Is that? That's a good deal. If you can get a solid haircut and 27 to 28 nuts out of the deal, that's the best 50 cents you'll ever spend. That's have to take, most bang for your... Take your words for that. Okay. Okay. Well, very well. Very now, well. Thomas also enjoyed... Well, he tried to, to kind of blend in with the other kids in the neighborhood right by playing Sandlot-style baseball and basketball with the other neighborhood kids, just kind of in a dirt lot, you know, basket. We all did that. Yeah. Basketball, baseball. But what he really enjoyed was playing dolls with his sisters. And he especially liked playing with his sister dolls when sisters dolls when they weren't around. Oh. So that he could like really enjoy it. You know, like really and like he won't be the feminine child that he was. He could really be himself. But he loved playing with his sisters more than anything. And when he was home alone, one of his favorite things to do was wear his mother's heels around the house and he would pretend to be a lady. So he would walk around in these high heels. Just like, oh, time to cook dinner. Oh. And his, he would probably jerk off two or three times on his way to the kitchen. He's like, oh, 
<laughs> he would get pots out, set them on the make noises. <laughs> then he would pretend like he had a husband to beat him, and he'd be like, "Oh, oh, oh, Johnny Garner." So that's fun. That's fun. That's a lot of fun. Sure is. Wow. Now another thing he starts doing around this age, up. He he ha- he also had kind of an infatuation with his dad. And his dad, one of his dad's favorite things to do after a long, hard day of work was relaxing in his bedroom on the bed. He'd he'd kick back, he'd leave his shoes on, and he would just read the paper, you know, lean back. This is like the 60s, early 60s, late 50s. That sounds pleasant. Just yeah. This is kind of what you, I, I picture in my head, one of those old music boxes, kind of, you know, playing some music. Yeah. He's got a little lamp going there. The decor in the room is fucking terrible. Yep. Because it's the 60s. Very thick and heavy textures on the walls and furniture. Yes. Well, the, the day of the light, day, the light of the day is fading, waning, if you will. And he's just reading the paper, right? He's enjoying I like that. the the end of his work day. Yeah. Now he doesn't know that right outside the window is his little fella, his little fella there that is looking at his shoes while he's laying there reading the paper. And what what else do you think he's doing up? Oh, uh, eating corn. You're close. He was actually just jerking his dick just as hard as he could, just <laughs> beating it like crazy against the side of the house there, and he would just jerk off. All over the side of the house there while he was looking at his father and his father's shoes. Oh. It's just, he probably, I bet he painted the side of that house 150 times. Oh. He was like Tom Sawyer, really. Yeah. Oh, uh, just like With the it. paint. Sounds he was like sitting it. there jerking. Some kid would come along and be like, what are you doing there? He's like, oh, I was having so much fun. I didn't even, and some kid's like, fun? That ain't fun. That's work. And he's like, this ain't work. Come here and try it. But was that Tom Sawyer? I think. <laughs> yeah, Tom Sawyer or, or Huck Finn or something like that. So he's, you know, he starts doing that. This is Now, this is odd behavior, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a psychiatrist, but yeah. I think jerking off to your father at, a, at 9, 10, 11 years old is weird. I would, yes, I, the, I concur. Out of the ordinary. Now, you know, like I said, he, it was mainly towards his father's shoes, but he liked his dad's feet too. And I kind of get shoe fetishes to a certain extent. Have you ever seen a fresh pair of Air Force Ones? Oh, yeah. Or maybe Chuck Taylors? Yep. Man, yeah. Air Force Ones on the shelf or a good set of low-top or even high-top Chuck Taylors? Mm. I get it. Yeah. I get it. They're fresh. I've been tempted to, to get thrown out of a footlocker a time or two. For stealing? No, not for stealing. Oh. not. F- now, when he would play house with his sisters... He loved to use a feminine voice, and he took on the identity of Mrs. Lady. How creative. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Super. I'm Mrs. Lady. Oh. <laughs> Mrs. Lady Sweat. <laughs> Sounds like a deodorant. <laughs> now, <laughs> while he did play with his sisters like this and stuff, he also spent a lot of time doing some boy stuff, trying to blend in at least. And he spent that time running around in the woods and picking blackberries and he would build forts with his brothers. But one thing they enjoyed doing was building these forts and then laying them and present, pretending like they were asleep for a long period of time, which is really what the fuck else can you do in a fort? Yeah. That's it. And then Sleep. like the sun starts to set and you're like, I'm hungry. Let's go get dinner. But Thomas wasn't satisfied with just leaving it. He always had a pack of matches on him and his favorite thing to do, the part that he looked forward to most of all, was burned down the fort afterwards, uh, oh. after they were done playing in it. And this is where that kind of starts. Mm. This 
this kind of starts. Now, not long after that, Thomas starts really enjoying catching trash cans on fire and, and just standing back and watching them burn. You know, and back in those days, every trash can was metal. So, yeah. so it was pretty safe yeah. from a fire standpoint. So that was his thing. He liked catching trash cans on fire and watching them burn. And this is the seed. This is the seed that will grow to be a huge issue later in life. Now, when he was about 13 years old, his mom catches him, actually, in the front doorway, jerking off while watching the mailman. Oh. We'll find out later. He loves a man in uniform, and it can be any uniform. Police officers, military, postmen, any uniform. UPS, just if they have a uniform on, he is DTF. He is down to finger. Or, um, I don't know what that means. So she, his mom catches him. He's 13. He's just standing in the doorway, just pulling on it. Like, maybe he'll break it. That's how hard he's pulling on it. Ow. And she locks eyes with him. He locks eyes with her. He's holding his dick in his hand. And they have an awkward moment. And she just kind of slowly backs away. <laughs> and they never address it to one another. Never. Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> So he's just having a good time, you know, He's but he's growing up. He's turning into a big boy, and he graduates high school in 1972, and that's when he tries to enlist in the United States Navy in 1973. And he does this because he has a love for the water, and he also has two older brothers that are in the Army. And he also, like I said, loves a man in uniform. It's his favorite thing in the world, so he's thinking, I'll get a job, I'll get to see the world, I'll be out on the water, and there'll just be men everywhere. In mm. uniform. Yes. Imagine, and there's also water that he can just, there's no mess to clean up. He can just jerk off, blow it into the water. The ship keeps on moving. <laughs> I don't know. Goliath groupers come up and eat it. So Thomas goes to, to take the, take all the tests. He passes the, the mental incompetency tests, but he fails the physical. And that's because he had high blood pressure. So they, they go to check him out. They're like, you got high blood pressure. You're not welcome here. And this kind of leaves him jaded a little bit with the military. He never really got over this rejection. But after this failed enlistment, he kind of, for a little while, gets kind of like a, a weird kind of Ed Kemper kind of interest in hitchhikers, but males, not females. And he starts picking them up in his 1969 Pontiac GTO, which is a pretty badass vehicle. Yeah. A 69 that's, GTO. That's a great year. Maybe the most masculine vehicle ever. ever. Oh, the the vehicle. I thought you were just talking about the year, because in the year 1969, there was a very valuable penny called the 1969-S double die strike penny that if you find one, they're not supposed to be in circulation, but it could be as valuable from 44000 to $100,000 for a double strike 1969-S double die Lincoln penny, okay? So start looking. Wow, that's a lot of fun. So 1969 Pontiac GTO that he drove around in, he, he starts getting a thing for hitchhikers. And one day he finally gets the nerve. And by I say getting a thing, he starts fantasizing about many weird things he could do with them, maybe against their will even. He picks one up wearing boots that he likes, these military-style combat black boots. He sees him walking. He's like, oh, I've got to at least get a closer look at those boots so he can take some mental pictures, right? right. So he picks this young fella up, good-looking dude, 
takes this fella to a secluded location, and it's here that he starts, against his will, starts running his, his fingers through his long hair. And the dude, instead of just hitting Thomas in the mouth, he goes, I'm heterosexual. <laughs> oh. But, unfortunately for him, much like the way, much like Sewer and Sower, <laughs> for me... Thomas doesn't know what heterosexual means. Okay. So he just keeps hitting on him. It doesn't slow him down one bit. Not one bit. At this point, Thomas grabs him by the sides of his head and kisses him on the forehead and then reaches down and starts playing with his boots. And this dude just really is is not, he's not feeling it. He's not interested. So Thomas is like, okay, so we'll leave. We'll leave. You're, not, you're clearly not feeling this. If you don't mind, though, I'm a little, I'm a little stuck here. You mind to get out and push? The guy's like, yeah, whatever, to get out of this weird situation that we're currently in. Yeah. So he gets out. Now, the reason Thomas wasn't actually stuck, he wanted the guy to get out and push because Thomas had actually planned on running him over and killing him. Whoa. That was the actual plan. Jeez. Yes. But in the process of trying to run this fella over and kill him, he actually did got get stuck in the mud. And the guy's like... Okay, and he just walks off towards the highway, and Thomas never sees him again. Oh, <laughs> lucky for him, I guess. Yeah, he, he kind of dodged a bullet with that one. Now, unfortunately, in 1979, Thomas's brother Luther is killed by his uncle Howard in a verbal altercation next door. Thomas is 25 years old at the time, and and I've got the whole story behind Luther and his uncle Howard, and it's not that interesting. But to break it down real short. Thomas and Luther's dad had gotten into a verbal altercation with their uncle Howard, who lived next door, ran to their house to get Thomas's brother, Luther, to help him fight his uncle Howard. And his uncle Howard instead just shot him when they got when they got back. But this kind of this is kind of the tipping point, because the same year Thomas decides I got to get the fuck out of Roanoke Rapids. And he goes to Washington, D.C. to find a good job. Also, this is probably a more gay-friendly area at the time. Wouldn't you say Washington, D.C.? I don't know. I think pretty much everywhere was probably, you had to be kind of under the cover of night during those times. I don't know, though. San Francisco, I guess, maybe? Good place to be? Oh, San Francisco for sure. But I I would imagine that Washington, D.C. was probably, I mean, it was probably safer for a gay man than, than Roanoke Rapids. Maybe, yeah. I'd agree. So he moves in with a friend in Washington, D.C. named Floyd Newell. And this this guy was also gay and also from Roanoke Rapids. And Thomas gets a job in a shopping center at a place called Holly Farms. Now, during this time, all of his money during this period of his life, there's there's a stint here where he focuses on looking good, getting nice clothes, and clubbing. Kind of, I mean, we were all young at one time. I bet you had a wild period there where you were I can I can see a young op out there fucking just doing cocaine and picking up prostitutes and just drinking till you get crazy and did you do stuff like that op? You know, I'll tell you I got a quick story. You won't even believe this. It was crazy, crazy. I'm at a bus stop this one time and I'm standing next to this guy and I was nine and he was nine. 10. He was 10. Let's, he's older than me. He was 10. And he says to me, got this fake blood. And I was like, what? He says, look at this tube. I have fake blood. And he had a tube of fake blood. And he squoze it at me like this. Ugh. He aimed it at me and squoze it. And I was freaked out because 
was wearing these eggplant-colored parachute pants my mom had sewn me just like the day before, and I was like so mad because I thought he got fake blood on my parachute pants or on my shirt. We could not find the fake blood anywhere. He aimed it right at me and squirted it, and we saw it come out and everything. Couldn't find it. Guess where it went? Straight up my nose. I didn't even know. From a distance, he shot it, and it went straight up my nose. And I didn't notice. We were about to get on the bus, and it started dribbling out of my nose. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you shot the fake blood right in my nose? 100% true. Issaquah, Washington was going, I was riding the bus around the same time that Ted Bundy was killing people at Lake Sammamish, which was eight blocks from my house. He shot you with fake blood into your nose. Yeah, it just went straight into my nose, whoop, right in my nose. And we didn't know until almost the bus came because it was sort of thicker, you know, and I guess the heat of my nose, nose heat, melted it just enough that it started dribbling out of my nose right at the end. What a shot. I know. He was a bully, so it was a moment where I developed a little bit of rapport with him. Because I was like, good shot, and he was like, thanks. I don't remember him talking to me ever again, but it was a nice moment. (laughs) (laughs) It's around this time when when Thomas is is in this, like, party mode, living with his his buddy. Mm. That that old burning in his gut, for the desire for fire kind of starts coming back around because he only lives one block from a fire station and that was fire station 30 mm. and it's at this point that he also kind of gets this this horny and fascination this horny fascination with fire stations and he starts in his free time prank calling firehouses just to hear their their manly firemen voices and and to jerk off like just violently jerk off and you know Back in these times, like a fireman had a mustache. I think it was like required. So it had to pass through that heavy mustache into the phone. Mm. And he liked that gravelly mustache ridden fireman voice that he could just violate himself over and over and over again. And he'll call and say sexual stuff to them and they'll get mad and they'll be like, oh, it got me again. That's terrible. And they hang up. They hang up. But he calls right back, and for some reason, they always answer. And it's like, oh, the phone's better not be that dick-beating guy. This better be a fire. <laughs> and the answers, and Thomas is like, you want a rim job? <laughs> or Actually, it's probably like, you want a rim job? <laughs> and they're like, oh, God damn it. It's that dick-beater again. Just beating his dick. That's about, always, all, about all I ever got was rim jobs when I... You, I could. Did you say you got a rim job? I could. I could make a layup really well, but most of the time it was just. Oh no, a rim job is something that a gay man does. Well, actually, it's not even a gay thing. It's. I mean, it can be straight people can do it. It's when you lick the asshole <sighs> of another human being off. Oh. Like they they have to spread their ass cheeks, and then the other person <sighs> licks around their asshole. They lick the. They get that leathery taste uh, in their mouth, like I did. licking a... I thought we were talking about basketball for a moment, that we were finally onto a subject that wasn't about butts or wieners. No, well, we were talking about rim jobs, but you were thinking about basketball, and this is about assholes, that leather penny, that just leather penny taste. Yeah. But, and, and it's not just gay people. I mean, men and women can do this, too, or even... I guess you could even if you want it. I mean, you could do it to animals. I guess if you I want it, or animals to you. I don't. Or I don't think you should. I just don't ever think you. 
So around the time he's he's calling these firefighters and jerking off a lot, he also starts setting small fires. And and by small fire, I mean small houses. A small house here, a small house there, maybe a small business. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, by the time this is all said and done, he has set over 340 fires that he can remember. Wow. There's no way in hell that we can cover those fi- all those fires in, in this. You just need to know going forward, you op and the listener, that throughout all the rest of this story, up until his point of getting caught, he is setting fires nonstop. Houses, vehicles, businesses, all the time. I don't know if you do the math on that. And this is, like I said, it's the 344 that they know of. There were so many that he forgot. He set so many fires. I mean, at one point he says, you know, there's 344 that we've written down there after he starts confessing to everything. But there's probably triple that that he forgot about doing. Jeez. So, that's crazy. I mean, you do that. Let's just say it's 600. <laughs> if he wasn't uh, starting fires, he was doing some other stuff, sounds like. Now, another thing that I want to cover real quick, and, and, and I want people to keep this in mind going forward, is that he often refers to, and, and I, I read a pretty lengthy book about Thomas. Now, he refers to it as a device, this device that he uses to start most of his fires. Now, this device was, was really kind of like a, a makeshift Molotov cocktail. Hmm. And the way he would do this was he would take a milk or a juice jug, fill it full of gasoline, put the lid on it, and then tie a, a piece of cloth around the handle. Now, sometimes this would be a piece of his own clothing if he was, like, out and about and he didn't happen to have, you know, one on him. He would go into a gas station, buy a gallon of milk, buy a juice jug, empty it, fill it full of gas, and then just rip a sleeve off his shirt and then tie it around. Hmm. And he got those cravings a lot. If he saw a house in particular that he just felt like he needed to burn down, like, for example, one time he burned a house down because... He thought the the color that it was was ugly. It was purple, and he didn't like the shade. So he was like, "Well, I need to burn that house down." Jeez. So <laughs> he gets these cra- he gets these urges a lot. Mm. So if you hear me say device moving forward, all that I mean by that is this makeshift Molotov cocktail filled with gasoline. Imagine a a milk jug filled with gasoline with the lid on it and a uh, a piece of rag tied around the handle. Now. The reason this is so effective is it because it allows him time to get to a, a point of safety, you know, before it punctures a hole, the heat punctures a hole and releases the the flammable fluid. Mm-hmm. And the second that fire licks that, that gas, it's just a fireball, right? So it's very effective. And, and we're going to go into a lot of burning cars here. So I'm going to tell you how he burns the, all those down, all of them. Every single one of the way he burns down the cars is all the same. He will light this fabric, and then he he likes to shove it in between the front tire and the fender. So, you know that space between the oh, top yeah. of your tire and the bottom of your fender well? Mm-hmm. And there's that plastic inner fender there inside your car? Yeah. He would light it and shove it in there, and that's just prime territory to, to start a fire, especially after that gas ignites. Yeah, gas on that plastic right into the gas tanks or oil, you know, crazy. Hoses, you've got all those rubber hoses. Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to take a minute to to clarify how many fires we're talking about here. There's no way we could cover all of them. And, and I wanted to, to clear that up, how he goes about doing this, because we're getting ready to, to hit the fast lane with these fires and stuff. And there's just so many of them. It's almost, aside from the ones where death resulted, it's almost unimportant. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Now, at this time, he also starts parking behind the fire stations at night and taking naps. It's it's like a warm feeling to him. And he also, he enjoys sneaking up to the windows while the firefighters are at the fire station and hanging out outside the window and pretending like he's a part of the crew and having conversations with them. They're having conversations, right? So John and Lenny are in there and they're like, hey, did you catch the baseball last night, Lenny? And Lenny's like, yeah. And, and Thomas is out there like, huh, I sure did, John. <laughs> what about them Broncos? <laughs> And then I don't, and that's not even a baseball team, but you know, Thomas didn't know that. <laughs> so he's just like pretending he's out there, like he's probably got a beer and a cigarette, just pretending like he's one of the boys, even though the boys don't even know he's there. So they didn't know he was there, even though he was. They didn't know he was there. They're just living their lives, and Thomas is kind of overing an unknown third party that's taking part in the conversations. But they don't know. They can't hear him because he's outside the window, and he's just oh. like he's their friend. But they're not his friend because they don't even know he exists. Wow, sad. And this is the way I felt a lot with girls in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> so I can kind of relate to this too. Yeah. Well, you're not going to meet too many girls in middle school if you're hanging outside the windows of a fire station, Kent. So, wait, <laughs> see how you missed out. <laughs> So in 1981, Thomas is walking down the street when he comes up on three teens who he thinks are attractive. There's a and there's a really tall one, and Thomas likes tall. He likes masculinity. Thomas is attracted to masculinity of all kinds: muscle cars, big feet, sweatiness, muskiness, wow. construction workers. None, you know, none of that is attractive to me. Huge none veiny dicks. Uh, so uh, sorry, Op. I, I went somewhere else there for just a second. It did. <laughs> the tallest one of these three teens. <laughs> so so Thomas is walking, and they're walking. And as they're passing him, the tallest one just goes, bag it, as he walks by. Because like I said, you know, Thomas has this kind of Saunter. hip walk. Yeah. What is now, in 2021, a hip walk. <laughs> you know, he's... Right. It's, he's ahead of his time. He really is. He was ahead of his time. Yes. So the tallest one drops that hurtful word Thomas goes home he stews on this for a minute he talks to himself and then he's like nah to hell with that I'm not gonna put up with that Thomas gets a knife goes back out and goes on the search for these three these three teens and you know good for him although I say the next move that he pulls not good for him but at least he was standing up for himself unfortunately for these three teens he does find them eventually in an arcade Playing an arcade game. This is 81, so I don't know, Pac-Man, maybe? Yeah, maybe Pac-Man, Big Doug. So they're playing. They're having a good time. Thomas spots them. They spot him, and the tall one just gives him this little shitty grin. Like, oh, there's that. F F word. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thomas just walks up and sticks the knife in his stomach. What? Just right into his gut. Stabs him. All the way to the handle. Just right to the stomach. What? Turns around and walks out. Oh my! Never gets caught. Never gets charged with anything. No, ever. Oh my! Never gosh. gets caught. Never gets charged with anything. That's hard to believe, too. Also, wow, old move. Now another thing he starts doing, like I said, is is this is when he starts developing his love for cars, and he likes setting sexy cars on fire. The sexier, the better. Mustangs, Camaros. Grand Nationals, this is the 80s, you know, Chevelles, Corvettes, 
nothing gets him hard Gremlin. like setting a sexy car on fire. Because the way he has this kind of fetish with the idea of a masculine na- man needing his help, mm. wanting to help. So he, he has this vision in his head of a of a masculine man running towards him saying that they need his help. He likes that. Interesting. He jerks off to that a lot. Huh. He really tossed a lot of mayonnaise to that kind of visual. Gross. You know. Yeah. Hey. Errol. Here's a Thomas Sweat quote for you, Op. Each fire set was different, but the car fires had a common message. That message was, if I can't have it, you can either. <laughs> oh. So I used fire as a tool to have the power to destroy. But when I would see somebody driving around in a new car that had replaced their car I had burned, I would think, okay, you can have that one. Watching people scramble out of burning buildings, I felt as if they needed my help. So I would just stay and watch. Driving away from the scene, I would masturbate in my car. What in the world? So he... He would watch people running out of burning buildings because he felt like they needed his help, but he would just stand there and watch and then drive away. And you forgot jerk off. That part, yeah. You always forget that I off. Will. You always forget. It's say I forgot. <laughs> so he's mainly jerking off, but yeah. And this is a thing. This is a running theme with Thomas Sweat. Over and over again, he, he talks about somebody wanting his help, but when they need his help the most, he's just got his dick in his hand. <laughs> And I like to imagine that, like he's he's got his tongue out of his mouth, chewing on it, just <laughs> like it probably looks like I don't know, Crash Bandicoot sitting there, just a black Crash Bandicoot, just vigorously beating. <laughs> They've got third degree burns all over their body. Now, my favorite part of this quote, though, is the message was, "If I can't have it, you can't either." So I used fire as a tool to have the power to destroy. But when I would see somebody driving around in a new car that I had re- that had replaced the one I had burned, I would think, "Okay, you can have that one." Like, so, like in his head, he uses this as a way to decide who gets what. This makes him king of the land, right? Yeah. So, whenever he would burn somebody's car down, their nice car, and then a few weeks later he would see them in a new car, the way he would justify not having to burn that one down in his head was was to go. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> you can have that one. The king has spoken. <laughs> the king has spoken. <laughs> the king. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's that is in that it, it tells you it's a little bit telling because it seems like he was a little bereft of control or power in a lot of the social aspects and you know, interpersonal aspects of his life that this was and he was making up for it with all the fires and stabby arts. Now, this is a good. This is good that you brought that up because his reason for setting the fires has many, many roots. It's not just one. It's not just the sex and the jerking off and the fact that it turns him on. It's also a, a lot. He, he admits in the book that a lot of the fires stem from jealousy, uh. from the, him seeing people in things, owning houses, driving cars that he knows he himself will never be able to, to afford. Or be in. It also comes from anger. Sometimes it's in retaliation to something, uh, which we'll go in and just go into in just a minute. And then uh, obviously also for the sex, the sexual reasons. Now, uh, and, and to, and also it's sometimes to get things that he wants. For, for example, uh, there were drug dealers in his area. Like I said, he lived in a poor area, kind of. 
And drug dealers were driving nice cars around there. He hated the drug dealers being around his house. So every time he saw a drug dealer, he would fucking just burn their car down. Jeez. And drug dealers, it worked. That's the craziest thing. He was almost like the dark knight in this aspect. Like would just he ran the drug dealers. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. They won't park their cars in his neighborhood because every single time a drug dealer's car is parked there, it burns down. And drug dealers are like, hey. Batman is around there somewhere, and he's he's an arsonist. He probably so. messed them up too, because that in their world, when those types of things happen, most of the time they would think that it's because of uh, competition, like you know, territory or something like that. So yes, he's probably messing with their heads. Regardless, it worked. Well, yeah. It cleared out the drug dealers from at least his little street there. Jeez. You know, where he lived now. To go into an instance where, how, just to let you know how petty Thomas was, Thomas once gets a, a bad haircut, a haircut he doesn't like. So he goes back that night and burns the barber shop down. You're kidding. No, oh, it gets worse. Hold on. So the barber shop, after suffering this huge tragedy, finally gets a new location and builds it back up from the ground. And like a year and a half later, it's got stabilized again. They're back in business. The second things start getting looking up, he burns it down again. <laughs> Jeez. Over one bad haircut. Very much that, uh, like you were saying, I'll allow it kind of, you know. It doesn't doesn't stand unless he unless he feels good about things. Creepy. Now in his apartment building also lived a DC firefighter. Thomas really liked this guy. He he was in love with him. Unfortunately for him, this guy was straight. So one day, Thomas waits for him to go to work, sneaks into his apartment, steals a pair of his firefighter boots, and then brings them back to his apartment and sets them on top of the gas stove and starts burning the soles off of them. And he loves the smell of that burning rubber off those musty, masculine, sweaty, feeted boots. And he talks about that a lot, the smell of burning rubber. He loves it, especially off shoes, sexy shoes, <laughs> masculine shoes. So he just burns them and fucking jerks off and just <laughs> he's just sniffing in that burning rubber and those that man's sweaty boots and just beating off. And he's also recording it, recording these boots burning on his stove so that he can jerk off to this porn that he's making later with the boots on the stove. Like a video. A video, yeah, he's recording it. Wow. And then after he's done doing all these horrible Thanks to these boots, he sneaks back into the apartment and puts these horribly abused boots back where they were, all burnt up. You can't unsee what these boots have seen. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure they're traumatized. They've got shell shock. <laughs> and they're burnt. They're still smoking. Like, like this firefighter isn't going to notice. <laughs> like, these boots don't have soles anymore, and they're covered in semen. <laughs> like... Oh, <laughs> Now, in 1982, Thomas quits his job at Holly Farms, where he had worked for three years, and gets a job at Church's Chicken. Now, this is where he develops a, a really, a really incredible passion for fried chicken. And I know it sounds like I'm getting racist because he's black, but I'm not making this up. This man really loved, loved, aside from fires and jerking off and men's feet and boots and shoes. Fried chicken was this man's life. He fucking, he really cared about fried chicken so much. 
<laughs> you know what? In Alabama, there was a church's chicken that went out of business. Stop me if I've already told you this one. And the church actually bought it and started a church called the Church of the Checkered Chicken at the church's chicken. Let's see. Quit his job at Holly Farms in 1982. And then this is where Op makes, yep, right here, a bad joke. Okay. He didn't work at, where? He didn't work at churches long, though, before getting a job at the superior chicken place, Roy Rogers. Oh, thanks. I don't know what Roy Rogers is. I guess it's a chicken chain. Is that a is that a place that you guys got down there? I've never heard of Roy Rogers. I'm guessing if Roy Rogers set it up, that it's probably a chain of chicken factors. Well, it's the name of the restaurant is Roy Rogers, and it's still a franchise to this day. I looked it up because really? I had never heard of it. Huh. Yes. They specialize in chicken, it seems. I looked at the menu. A lot of chicken sandwiches, fried chicken baskets, a lot of fried chicken. Uh, but they also offer burgers. Oh. But Thomas didn't really care about the beef. He was about that that fowl. Yeah, <laughs> he wanted that chicken. Like, I don't want I don't want to like cloud my my work ethic with beef. I don't care if it's ninety seven three, you know, ninety ten, <laughs> like eighty twenty, seventy thirty. It doesn't matter. Right. All that matters is chicken and fried chicken. <laughs> He's at Roy Rogers for a long time. We're we're gonna find out. He, he works at Roy Rogers for for about ten years. Wow. Okay. But for him, it was always about the fried chicken. Now, on January 11th, 1985, Thomas is walking home from work from Roy Rogers. It's nighttime outside. There's snow on the ground. When he passes a young man on the sidewalk that's walking the opposite direction. Now, this young man's name was Roy Picot. Roy, being friendly, nods to Thomas. Biggest mistake he ever made because Thomas finds him incredibly attractive. He's young. He's tall. He's fit. He's masculine. Thomas looks back to see Roy for a minute and notices Roy reaching into his pocket to pull out his keys and then sees him hang a right off the sidewalk and realizes that's his house. Thomas takes a mental note of this location, rushes home, gets all his, his little arson kit, 32 ounces of gasoline, a rag. Then he goes back later in the night. He, he works some of the towel under the door of, door of Roy Picot's house. Fills everything that pours gasoline underneath the door, best he can, and then lights the towel on fire. Now, his whole reason for this was he just wanted to see Roy again. <laughs> he just wanted to see him again. <laughs> and I'll admit, this is easier <clears throat> than saying hello or asking for your number. You know, hey, hey, young fella, I'd like to suck your dick. You down later? <laughs> Something like that, you know. Something, Something. simple. Burning down their fucking house is far easier than initiating conversation. Yes, to get them to come out, that's one way to do it. And I can see him running out of the house with third-degree burns in his underwear, and Thomas is sitting there or waiting outside, and he's like, Thomas kind of throws an elbow on the <laughs> on the wall beside him. He's like, so how you doing, cowboy? So <laughs> You smell like Roy. Funny seeing you out here again. <laughs> Roy, Roy Rogers. Fried Roy. He sets the house, like I said, he sets the house on fire. He And then he goes to his car, which he's parked almost in front of the house on the opposite side of the street, and waits. 
It just sits there and waits. Now, before long, obviously, fire trucks start barreling down the road. Roy jumps out of a window, and he's standing out in the front lawn in his underwear. He had escaped, like I said, through a window, but he has first, second, and third-degree burns over 60% of his body. He is badly injured, and he was screaming that his wife and children were still inside. Jeez. Unfortunately, he had two sons, two teenage sons in the basement and two young girls on the second floor. All of them were still in the house. Now, he doesn't care that he's screaming about his wife and kids. Thomas just likes the idea that this this attractive man is covered in burns and standing out there needing help in his underwear. And also, he likes the idea that he was the cause of all this. He really enjoys that. Now, while this is going on, Thomas can also hear Roy's two young boys screaming in the basement. Oh, jeez. Fortunately, the two boys make it out relatively unharmed. The two daughters, however, that were upstairs make it out with severe burns. They are scarred for the rest of their life with severe burns over much of their body. And unfortunately, Roy's wife, Bessie Mae Duncan, died in the fire on the second floor. Thomas actually shows up to her wake. But he just stands outside in the rain alone. Jeez. You know you know what this reminds me of? Now, it just dawned on me. This whole cause damage to manufacture someone's need, but then not help them. Are the, the, like the deadly nurses or doctors, you know, those ones that kill yes. the patients? Yeah. Yes. Kind of came to mind that this is similar to that. Unfortunately, Roy Picot, who had made it out of the fire, also dies on March 5th, two months later, from his injuries after several surgeries. So both Roy and Bessie Mae Duncan pass away. These four children now have no parents. There. Uh, Thomas, however, really doesn't give a shit, even though he claims he was sad that Bessie died. But he also says her death was just collateral damage for him to get something that he needed. Jeez. So for him, it's kind of a... Yeah, it sucks, but how else was I supposed to see Roy? You know. Terrible. Got to break a few omelets to make an egg. That kind of thing. So, investigators believe that the fire had been caused by a dropped cigarette on the second floor, despite the fact that Roy Picot insisted nobody in the house was a smoker. But, you know, this is a poor black neighborhood. They're like, ah, that was a cigarette. Yeah, especially since all of the fire... Evidence would have been at the front door. Weird. Yeah, exactly. Sweat regularly uses this tactic. As I mentioned, he's he's probably set over his lifetime over 600 fires. He regularly, though, uses this tactic when he sees somebody attractive that he wants to see again. Instead of initiating conversation, he just smokes them out. So he'll just take a note of where they live and then go wait and burn their house down and wait for them to come outside. And then he's like, hee <laughs> And then he just drives off. Jeez, what a crazy! Now he's often also often recording the fires. I've really never heard. I mean, I'm sure that this is a, maybe common with arsonists, but this seems so odd to me. I like I haven't I haven't heard of of this kind of a dynamic before. I told you this fellow was a goober. Wow, yeah, he's a real goober. He's a goob. Yes, and like I said, he would record a lot of these fires to jerk off to later. Because he's still jerking off. I know I've kind of lightened up on the jerking off talk. But you just need to assume that in between all this, there's a lot of masturbation. Like, 
He's probably got racing stripes up the sides of his dick from where he's holding it from just jerking off so much. Calloused. Calloused. Loud and like, clear. Like, an el- like, like, the f- like the trunk of an elephant. That kind of callous. Just thick callous from all the friction, from all the jerking off. Such a, just so. Such a picture you're painting, painting in my mind. Now, in 1992, he gets an apartment on La Bomb Street to himself, and this is where he'll stay for the remainder of his free life. According to all accounts, this apartment that he gets on La Bomb Street in 92 is meticulous. He was very orderly, very clean, meticulous, OCD to a point, mm. meticulous. You could eat off anywhere in this house, probably the toilet seats if you wanted to. Well, I mean, when he jerks off, he really immediately cleans up the semen. Like, it doesn't even have time to get dry on the, like, around the edges. It's like, oh, got to get the semen up. Yeah. I don't know how it And he's dries. probably cleaning a half a gallon to a gallon of semen a day. That's an excessive count. In 1993, Thomas gets fired from Roy Rogers for being rude to a customer. And this is when he gets a job at KFC. Oh. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Unfortunately, this is one of those hybrid kind of restaurants where it's attached to a pizza hut. Oh, yeah. So it's a KFC slash Pizza Hut. Mm -hmm. Now, Thomas hates this. He hates it so much because all he cares about, like we said, is the fried chicken. Like, he really wanted to perfect that fried chicken. But all these little sons of bitches, they keep coming (laughs) in and ordering pizza. And he, like, really pisses him off. He hates it. (laughs) What's also funny about that is because, you know, he's... Talking about being so meticulous with chicken, which literally was bagged and seasoned somewhere else. Like, there's not an art form to it by the time it gets into those guys' hands. No. You put it in this for this amount of time, done. (laughs) Done. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at this KFC slash Pizza Hut hybrid is where he will work until he gets caught over a decade later. He is a model employee. He cares about the product that he puts out, especially the chicken, the chicken more than anything, to a fault. Uh. Like, it has to be perfect, the perfect crispiness. All 11 herbs and spices <laughs> have to be there. Right. All of them, and they have to be perfect. He was a great employee, and he works his way up the chain and eventually becomes manager. He is like a KFC drill sergeant. Like... Get those chicken in that. Get that chicken in that batter. Seven minutes. Let it cool off. Let it cool off. I don't want customers with cold chicken. Like, he really cares about this mm. chicken. Yeah. And while we're on KFC, are you? am I the only one that KFC makes feel like absolute dog shit? I, I feel, uh, I can feel the grease in my veins after I eat it. I, I, I don't know when the evolution happened, but when I was a kid, I loved eating the the. The outside of the chicken, like the, all the fried part. Oh yeah, skin. Oh, but the best part. Yeah, at some at some point, I I shifted to eating just the, the meat, and I, I, unless it was part of the bite, I couldn't eat the just I couldn't peel the skin off and eat it anymore. I don't know. It's too much grease. It's too much. It's excessive now. Every time I eat KFC, I just feel like I'm pouring quickcrete. Yes, into my stomach. Right. It just sits. In my stomach, yep. like a greasy, heavy cinder block. Now, the other thing about it that is is it's a kind of a conundrum 
a confounding component in my head is I actually crave the coleslaw. I don't crave anything that's vegetable-based, but I crave the coleslaw and the mashed potatoes from there. I, I would buy those. Oh, those mashed potatoes are on point. They are on point. You know what isn't on point is their macaroni and cheese. Yeah, that's like a lead puck. It's goop. Yeah, it's goop. It's like overcooked goop. A gorilla glue. Did you ever order my favorite thing whenever I was a kid when I would go to like Long John Silver's or Captain D's? I would order a big thing of those crunch. I call them crunchies. And it's just the crunchy bits off of the chicken batter. Oh, that is, yeah. They, I, they will sell those to you if you ask them. Really? They will. Really? Yes. Wow. There's a yes. there's a restaurant here in town where I don't know how they do it, but they call it like it's chicken to chicken strip, but somehow they've made it so it's almost like cancer because like you bite into it and there's like I don't know eight inches of batter that you're biting through fried batter, and somewhere in there it just melts it turns into chicken it's there's no diff i would not like that that's disgusting it's different because it's like eating a baby's arm because it just kind of it just doesn't it doesn't feel like there's any delineation between the batter and the chick anyway i i I digress i like a more chicken than breading ratio on my chicken strips yes and on a chicken sandwich i like there to be a more bread than chicken ratio yes i i agree with that I agree with that. When it comes to cheese sticks, like if you get, you know, cheese melted mozzarella sticks, I prefer them to not just be like regular cheese sticks, string cheese covered in some kind of batter. That's too much cheese. It's just too much, especially if it's not like cooked all the way through or if it's one of those fake cheese sticks where it turns to powdered cheese in your mouth after it cools down after a second. Can't, can't, can't. Cannot abide. Now I, I've got to I've got to put my foot down and disagree with you here because I can eat cheese sticks of any kind until I physically pass away, <laughs> until I die. The only thing stopping me is myself because if I ever end up on death row, I might just order eight, nine, ten pounds of cheese sticks and try to beat them to killing me by killing me with cheese sticks. I can just hear it's like just a normal 6 six o'clock p.m. on a normal Wednesday night for you. Curl up in your easy chair. and I can, Here's what your heart sounds like as you eat your cheese sticks. <laughs> hey, you want to know something funny, though? <laughs> True story. So I have a cheat meal every Saturday, right? Uh, I try to monitor what I eat throughout the week. And then on Saturday, me and my wife go crazy. We both do this. Mm. We've been doing this for years. But I eat so disgustingly on Saturday. <laughs> like, I might eat, like, literally half of a Domino's Because we'll just go to, like, I'll be like, I think I want a pizza and a burger and some mozzarella sticks. <laughs> so we'll go to Domino's, get a pizza, go to Wendy's, get a burger, go to... Ruby Tuesdays and get some mozzarella sticks <laughs> right. and we'll just go home with this feast every Saturday we do this every Saturday and I'll eat so much grease and where my body's not accustomed throughout the week with the carbohydrates and the grease I will literally every single Saturday I've been doing this for years think that I'm dying I will think because my blood pressure will go through the roof my heart will start beating faster I'll get cold sweats 
and I'll start feeling lightheaded and tired and just groggy. <laughs> and every every Saturday, I think this is it. I'm, I'm going to die. This You're going day. into grease shock? Yes. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Thomas Sweat, he starts. So the, his next bit of shenanigans, if you will, the next level of bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S, is... I guess you could call this escalating with the sex stuff because he he starts kind of leaning more into his obsession with men in uniform. Okay. And he starts going back on that old chip of his shoulder, chip off his shoulder that he has with the military, right? Mm. So what he does is he starts calling rec- marine recruiting offices. He really liked the marine uniforms, especially the marines. But he only targeted marine recruiting offices and he would tell them that he had a nephew that was interested in joining the military. That lived with him, and they needed to come to his house and talk to his nephew about joining the Marines. There was never a nephew. Uh Surprise. Yeah. But what Thomas would do is he would... Now, this is the 80s. Actually, this is the 90s, early 90s. He had a a camera set up so that he could film the recruiter's feet while they're sitting on his couch waiting for his nephew to show up. So they would show up to the apartment. Thomas would be like, oh, yeah, I've definitely got a nephew. <laughs> he's he's interested. Just sit down on the couch there, and he'll be with you shortly. <laughs> and they're probably like, sir, can you put your dick away? <laughs> but um, <laughs> Thomas, like, walks off. He's in heels. <laughs> By the way, I'm Mrs. Lady. <laughs> <laughs> he's twisting his ankle because he's got these man feet. He's in a nighty. They're like, what the fuck? Anyways, they go in and sit down on the couch. He's got this camera angled so that he can film their feet and their crotches because he likes it. He goes into this a lot in the book, too. He likes it when men open and close their legs. You know how you kind of sit sometimes and you're just bored and you man just kind spread. of. spread. Yeah. But you just kind of open and close your legs. You're not even consciously doing it, oh. right? You just, just like restless leg syndrome almost. Sure, you just, sure. He loves that. Weird. And he so he likes to be able to see their feet, their dress shoes, and their crotches. <laughs> now, th- like I said, this is the early '90s. He does note that sometimes recruiters notice the camera, but never said anything. And I just like it. I like it to be like he thinks he's being all sly, and it's like literally a. A camera on tripods in the middle of the living <laughs> With the red light on. <laughs> with the red light blinking, yeah. <laughs> it's got the bulb with a big thing. <laughs> I hope they don't notice. <laughs> Over here behind the backdrop. <laughs> so he does this to, to many recruiting stations around his area. Now, this is D.C., so there's a bunch. And the Marine recruiters finally like figure out who, like, hey, listen. That guy doesn't have a nephew. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. There was no nephew. He's just jerking off a lot. So just, here's a question. Is so is he sort of an incel at this point? Is he he's not sexually active yes. at all? Yes. Okay. He he is not, no. Um he, he never really formed a serious relationship with another gay man aside from uh, a fellow named Tyrone uh. who was mildly interested in him. Thomas developed an obsession with Tyrone, but Tyrone was just kind of young and having fun, you know, yeah. like young people do. And Tyrone kind of broke that shit off, and then Thomas stole his shoes and jerked off into him and slept with him for a long time. That uh, sounds like Thomas. Filled him full of semen and then slept with him. But aside from that, he never really had a relationship. No, at no point is he regularly sexually active. He's just jerking off a man so much. So much. Just- 
Too much. Now this is uh, when he, like I said, he's leaning into his into his Marine obsession. He starts burning Marine Corps owned vehicles in the Landover, Maryland recruiter's office. Uh, so anytime he sees a Marine, a government issued Marine Corps vehicle for recruiters, he burns it down. And then he uh, also burns down several Marine Corps recruiting offices, the offices themselves. Wow. He even tries to burn down the Marine Corps recruiting station in Landover, Maryland. During one of these escapades where he's burning down the recruiter's vehicles, he finds a Marine Corps set a Delta uniform inside one of these one of these vehicles before burning it, and he steals it. Now, the Delta uniform is not the dress blues. Uh, people commonly in their head picture dress blues, which is the, the dress blue jacket with the medals mm-hmm. and the... You know, uh, Delta uniform is is just the blue slacks, and then it's it's like a tan brownish button up shirt. Okay, it's a button up shirt, dress shirt, sleeveless dress shirt, not sleeveless. Long, it's got short t shirt sleeve. sleeves. Okay, yeah, short sleeve mm-hmm. button up t shirt, dressed, ironed, tucked in to the slacks, and then you've got your ribbons on. It. Okay, that's your typical recruiter uniform. Okay, it's it's breathes, it's comfortable. It's not hot, bulky, you know, you can throw it on and be looking really fresh, relatively shortly. I see. Okay. So he stole this Delta uniform and he starts wearing it around his house at home and looking in the mirror and jerking off. And he's like, and he says that (laughs) he tries to walk masculine at home. So he's in the mirror. He's walking around looking in the mirror in this Marine Corps uniform. But, and he tries to walk masculine, but he just wasn't capable. He just couldn't. No matter how hard he tried, he tries to walk manly. Can't do it. But he still gets to jerk off a lot, so that's that's fun. That's a lot of fun. Like I said, he's going to recruiting stations. He's he's burning them down. He also, another thing he enjoys doing is filming the recruiters going in and out of the recruiting stations in their uniform, and, and he jerks off to that, masturbates to that a lot, to this like candid footage that he's filming of these poor men. Just trying to do their job. Unfortunately, on February 5th, 2002, Thomas sets a house on fire that results in the death of 89-year-old Annie Brown. Now, there's there's nothing outlandish that stands out about this. It's just happened to be one of those kind of spur of the moment. You know, I, I think I want to burn that house down. He could choose from a million reasons to burn a house down simply because he liked the porch on it. So Right. Yeah. In 2002, Annie, Annie Brown dies. That's now three deaths that are attributed to him. And on June 5th, 2003, Thomas is walking by the house of 82-year-old Mama Lou Edna Jones. Now, Mama Lou Edna Jones was a loved figure in the neighborhood. Just uh, She loved cooking out, doing barbecues, and inviting people over. Never met a stranger. She was kind of like the neighborhood's, you know, mama. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew her. Everybody loved her. Everybody cared for her. Yeah, she maintained her yard meticulously. She loved flowers, loved cooking out, like I said, and she would help anybody that she that she could. She never met a stranger. Now, as Thomas is driving by Mama Lou Edna's house, he sees a tall, attractive man just leaning out the door to get the mail out of the mailbox on the side of the house. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's all it took. He saw a hot a hot man leaning out to get the mail. At that moment, Thomas says, I'll burn that down. I got to see that guy again. I'll burn that house down. Smoke him out. Comes back that night and does exactly what he did with Roy Picotte's house. Unfortunately, Mama Lou Edna Jones does die in the fire of smoke inhalation. Her grandson does survive. Now, 
just a little bit prior, Thomas had set a separate fire 50 miles away. So he's got two fires running at the same time simultaneously. And they think that this is half the reason Mama Lou Edna Jones died is because a lot of their fire capabilities were tied up. I see. When asked about this particular fire in jail, one of the things that that Thomas says, he kind of gets this smile in his eye and he goes, Wow, I'll always remember this house. He speaks of each one like they're his children, each fire. He he goes into one of the more interesting aspects of the book is hearing him. He can recite for most of the fires. He can tell you what color the flames were, how they burned, the kind of smoke that they admitted, the smells. Each one is wow. it has its characteristics, and each one is like a child to him. Crazy child. Now, in September of 2003 at 3 a.m. in the morning, Three brothers return home. They've been out partying, having a good time, and they return home to find Thomas sitting on their front porch. He's kind of been busted at this point, and this is something that he did a lot to a house that he would burn down while the family is, tell me this isn't creepy, while the family is sleeping soundly inside in the house, he would go up on the porch and sit there for sometimes hours and just imagine that the house was his and that, this was his place and just take in the sights of the neighborhood and everything. Sometimes an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and then he would burn it. When the brothers find Thomas sitting on their porch, he quit. He starts acting lost. He's like, oh, this isn't, this isn't the Walmart parking lot. I didn't park my car here. He says he got lost. He stopped for a rest real quick, and then he like really quickly leaves. He, he, he scuttles off, but he forgets his bag with the supplies in it on the porch. And inside the bag, these three brothers find a full jug of gasoline and a juice bottle and fabric tied to the outside. They call the police. Now, at this point in time, it is well known that there is a very serious issue with an arsonist in this area. They have already attributed four deaths at this point. You got Mama Lou Edna Jones, Annie Brown, Ron Picot, and his wife. So four deaths. They're on it hard. They're trying to figure out who this guy is. So when the brothers come forward and they say, hey, this 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 weirdo was sitting on our porch. He left gasoline with fabric tied to it. The police take this very seriously, which is good on them. Now, mm-hmm. of course, because Thomas is jerking off all the time, his dick is out half of his life. He spent at this point half of his life masturbating. In the bottom of this bag, they find a pubic hair. Surprise, surprise. Yes. Now, the police get it DNA analyzed, and they discover it's from a black male, but they currently don't have any any DNA to match it against. So it's somebody that, that doesn't have a history of being in trouble. They do, however, get the arsonist that's responsible for all these fires profiled and determined that he would be a lonely and anxiety-ridden and plagued by a sense of failure. Pretty spot on. Yeah, pretty accurate. Or- they hit it kind of on the head. Like I said, Thomas is still working at KFC. He's important now. He's a manager. He absolutely loves knowing that the police are looking for him. And he would kind of oftentimes push the push the line whenever he would see police staked out at nighttime waiting to see see if they could catch an, the arsonist doing what he was doing. Thomas would walk by their vehicles, wave at them. Provoking in a way. Provoking, yes. Interacting with them. He really liked that. It really got his rocks off. Huh. At this point, when every time Thomas sets a fire, police start pulling together immediately large numbers and scouring the scene. They're now taking this very seriously. And Thomas says, you know, I like the attention from setting fires. 
December 2003, Sweat actually sits outside the ha- this house that he's just set on fire. He sits outside in his car and waits for the fire trucks to get there. When they get there, he's grinning and he starts flashing his lights at them as they're coming around the corner. So he's sitting in front of the house that he just set on fire and he's flashing the lights at them, taunting them. Ow. However, the firefighters just assume he's trying to wave them down, kind of flag them down to let them know where the house, where the fire is. And right. they ignore him. Kind of reminds me of that Garth Brooks. Standing outside the fire. <laughs> standing. Life is not tried. It is merely survived. If you're standing outside the fire. Remember that song? Try to forget it, but yes, I remember it. About uh, You ever seen the video? It's about a young man with Down syndrome competing in the Special Olympics. Oh, I did not see that. Yeah, that's in the video. You should check that out. Pretty good video. February 2004, Thomas targets two apartment buildings. And in the second building, the fire didn't completely burn his device, quote, unquote. And the cloth was still intact. And he had used it. He had just ripped a pair of his pants and used this device. Now, it had DNA on it. And this is when they get a DNA match, profile match, with the hair the pubic hair that was in the bag from the porch a few months prior. So now they know for sure that they've got the same guy. This is the same guy doing this. December 4th, 2004, just 11 months later, investigators locate a Marine Corps cap and a pair of Marine Corps, a pair of Marine Corps pants a block away from an active house fire. Now this, they think Thomas did this to kind of get them to think that it was a Marine that was doing this. Quantico, Virginia, isn't that mm-hmm. far away. Marine Corps base. And it does kind of work for a moment, but they quickly say, no, that's not the case. They do, however, remember that several Marine Corps recruiting offices had been hit prior. So they go back and reinvestigate the footage from that because whenever that was going on, they weren't sure if they had a serious serial arsonist. So they kind of looking at that from a different lot. That's when they go back, they reevaluate the video evidence from those Marine Corps recruiting office fires, and that's when they find a video from the security camera that had a grainy image of a car leaving the scene. After they send that footage off to have it cleaned up by professionals, they discover that it's the vehicle belonging to Thomas Sweat. <laughs> that's when surveillance has started on Sweat. They're on his tail now, but they don't have any, like, that. they need his DNA. They need his DNA. They've got all this DNA evidence. One lead investigator on the case walks right into KFC while Thomas is working and point blank asked him if he's been starting the fires. Sweat oh. responds, why would I set those beautiful homes on fire when I'm trying to become a homeowner myself? <laughs> <laughs> they think that's fishy. They think that's an odd answer, you know, yeah. because we never said anything about what kind of homes they were about anything. They're pretty sure this is their guy. They're, they're, they're certain at this point. They also consider him an odd character because at one point, while they're surveilling him, they see Thomas lean down in the parking lot, pull out a pocket knife, and start digging old chewing gum out of the cracks in the parking lot to keep it clean. That's OCD kind of kicking in, well, you know? Yeah. Like I said, the investigator thinks that's an odd answer and then asks Thomas if he would be willing to submit his DNA Thomas, thinking he had left no DNA at any scene, and even if he had, fire destroys all of that, very cockily and confidently responds, absolutely, I'll give you my DNA, and he does. 
He willingly gives them his DNA right then and there. And, of course, it is a match. And on April 27, 2005, now 50-year-old Thomas Sweat is arrested while leaving a staff meeting for KFC. It's his last meeting he'll ever leave. During questioning, he breaks down after two hours and starts singing like a canary in a coal mine. He admits to over 353 fires dating back to the mid-80s, but says there's so many more than that that he just can't even remember. There's so many fires. Jeez, that's amazing. He ends up taking a plea deal, and he pled guilty to all charges and got life in prison plus 136 years. How do they decide how many years is enough years? That just seems like such a random number. 136 years. Where do you, where do you, where do you get that? I think I think sometimes the extra years are strategic. It, in one case, they're they're extra years that could be tacked on for additional charges or extenuating circumstances. The other is strategic in the in this from the sense that if an appeal were to land, and like for some reason his life imprisonment was struck down or cleared there'd still be 136 years to keep him in jail. So even if his life... It's insurance. It's insurance. It's kind of a backup plan kind of thing. Okay. So he's sent to Terre Haute Penitentiary, and that is where he will remain for the rest of his life. As of recently, if you're wondering if maybe he's got over this fire obsession, he did say that recently his his one of his sisters sent him a picture while he was in prison of her her new home that she just moved into, which he had never seen. And he said immediately all he thought about when he saw the picture was how much fun it would be to set the houses in that neighborhood on fire. And he goes, it's so sad. It's so sad that those demons are still in me. They're still in me. Nobody feels worse for Thomas Sweat than Thomas Sweat does. He really has no remorse, it seems, for any of these crimes. And he really looks back on a lot of these fires uh, fondly. It, it, it's interesting. I'm looking at these mug shots now. Just any picture, actually any picture that is taken of him, he looks like he just smelt his own fart. It's sort of a grin, but like his nostrils are open a little too wide. It, he looks kind of like he's like, ah. or or maybe it's like it's that look of son, you son, you burned that chicken. <laughs> you know, he's got this kind of like kind of this sniff. He, he's got a he, he got a perma sniff on his face, kind of like mm, something's not right here. Got a look on his face like he's smelling melted rubber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a psycho! What a weirdo! What? That's just so much to unpack with that guy's brain. Real a real loony, real Looney Tune cartoon character. This guy is. Yeah. Now, uh, at this point, I want to I want to kind of cite my source because I really used primarily one aside from a few articles on the Internet and whatnot. And that's the book Thomas Sweat Inside the Mind of the of D.C.'s Most Notorious Arsonist by Jonathan Reif. Pretty good book. Uh, I recommend it if you want to read more details into this interesting individual. And that's it. Uh, That is it. We're ready to close the doors on this one. And, and put out the fire. Well, that's one I, I won't, won't miss uh, not thinking about anymore. Well, if, uh, if you're amenable to the prospect, I will, um, you know, maybe I'll call you tomorrow. And uh, we can talk about another sweaty psychopath. Baby, you're a firework. 
Come on, show them what you're worth. You call me up. I'll call you. Okay, you keep singing that song when I call you back, and we'll maybe we'll sing together. Maybe you're a firework. So good, so good. All right, hugs. 